Here's All the Stones by Blitzen Trapper, a Patagonia Music benefit track for S-O-L-V. Introducing Patagonia Music, exclusive songs from your favorite bands to raise money for environmental activism. Search Patagonia Music on iTunes or download the free Patagonia Music iPhone app and you can stream the Dirtbag Diaries wherever you roam. Patagonia Music. Buy a song, benefit the environment. Learn more at patagonia.com slash music. Sweet, so where am I going? All right, I'm just gonna go to the end of this street. Actually take a left around this island. Okay. So see the white picket fence? You're gonna go through the back alley, so turn right. Okay. This is Greg Bleakley. We were parked in front of the home Greg bought as a 26-year-old. But it goes deeper than that. We were parked in front of his old life. Story one with the window. Yeah. The white one. Crazy. And it's funny you weren't kidding about the fence and the whole thing too, huh? Yeah. I had the fence. Had the garage. I built <laughs> I built this wall. Uh-huh. It was one of my How long did you own it before you took that trip? I bought it I think in two thousand one. Uh-huh. So I owned it for several years. I left on the trip in two thousand five. When you left, did you think you'd be selling it? When I left, I didn't really know what I was getting myself into. I had no idea what was going to happen. Yeah. Is it kind of crazy to see it now? or? Yeah, because the last time I lived here, the last time I was here, I was a totally different person, you know? Yeah. And I look at all this stuff. I had four bathrooms. Uh-huh. Why do you need four bathrooms? <laughs> That's kind of wild. <laughs> Of course, I had the, the ultimate Pimp Daddy TV surround sound system in my living room. Another high-end purchase was this black Italian leather couch. I still have it in my storage unit. And I think that thing was like five grand, you know? <laughs> I had the new uh, sports car. I had uh, a you know garage full of, of outdoor gear toys that I'd never really used because I didn't know how to use any of them because I never went outside. Really, life as a software salesman is about selling things to people, earning your commission, and then your boss tries to encourage you to spend that commission, so you have to go out and make more, right? So it's about earning and buying, earning and buying. At least in my world, that's what it was about. So that's what happened to me. I had some great accounts, amazing opportunities in software, and I was successful. That was a decade ago. He was selling in Seattle. He was crushing it. I'll tell you a story about my first real gig in the software industry was for Oracle Software, which is the second largest software company in the world. And they're a huge powerhouse. The founder actually bought Marine World down in the Bay Area and turned Marine World into the office headquarters. And I was in the sales department. And the sales department has its own building. There's 700 other salespeople in that building. And the training program, when they recruit you, they tell you, you know, this is the best training program in the world for software. We invest $100,000 per employee to make sure that you're the best salespeople on the street. So I went to this tr- training program, and day one, there's a senior software executive who walked in with a CD in his hand. He just stood there in front of the class. He threw the CD on the ground and jumped up and down and cracked it open. He said, you see that? 
that was a $22 million product. What other industry or business in the world could you take a $22 million product, throw it on the ground, and break it? This is software, and this is why it's the best place to be a salesman in the world. And then I didn't really know what to do. <laughs> I didn't know whether to laugh or to stand up and go, yes, <laughs> because the guy actually made a $2 million commission or something like that selling the software that he just threw on the ground and cracked. Oracle was Greg's first job. Later, he went to work for a smaller company based out of Seattle. For some reason, it just didn't feel right at the end of the day, and I couldn't figure out why. The money was great. People were great. I was excited about going to work, but something just felt wrong. This malaise kept growing in his life, even as he became more successful. By the time he was 30, he was an up-and-coming software sales executive. He had a serious girlfriend, possessed all the trappings, but he couldn't sleep. He'd stay up listening to music. He'd shuffle around his house. He'd watch his big screen TV. He'd fall asleep on the black leather Italian couch. Then he'd get up and do it again. And it, it was one of those things where I didn't really know what my problem was. At some point, Greg had an idea, one that he didn't share with anyone. Not his family, or his co-workers, or his longtime girlfriend. He worked on it for years, tracing details, saving money, and set it in motion in almost total secrecy. It was an idea that was going to change his life. Actually, when I did uh, stomach the strength to go and tell my parents, I remember calling my mom and dad and saying, hey, you know, guys, i got to sit down and talk to you about something. And I drove over to their house, and we went in their living room, and started chatting around the couch, and I said, okay, small talk over. I need to tell you something. My mom stood up, clapped her hands, and goes, oh my gosh, you're getting married. <laughs> so, uh, not exactly, Mom. I'm actually quitting my job, selling everything I own, and riding my bike from Alaska to Argentina. Metamorphosis is an easy process. There is reason why it's scary, why we fear it. Today, we present Ditch Logic, a story about three epiphanies. This is what redefining your life, your course through the world, looks like. It ain't always pretty. I'm Fitz Cahal, and you're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. Planning a 19,000-mile bike ride from Prudhoe Bay, Alaska, to the very tip of South America isn't something you plan in a few weeks. Greg and his friend Brooks Allen started planning the ride more than three years in advance. They knew it was going to take at least a year. At least. This was a massive undertaking. A potentially life-defining trip. But Greg essentially kept quiet. First time I really started talking about this trip, I, I actually hid this trip from from my friends and family. I didn't tell anyone about it until about a month or two before I left. So the only person that knew was Brooks, my riding partner, and a couple other really close friends. I can't I can't imagine like doing this for, for three years, coming up with all these ideas and then not tell anyone. Why did you why did you keep quiet? A lot of it was had to do with my career. I think it looks really bad if you're out I mean especially, you know, you're a software executive up and coming 
lots of big clients. And if you start going around and telling people that you're going to take off on this trip, ride your bike from Alaska to Argentina, they're going to think you're crazy, A. And B, they're not going to take you seriously. So I didn't want anyone in that world to know about it. And then I guess I was always, un I was always very comfortable with the idea myself. It was something I really wanted to do. It was, it was a dream I had. But I wasn't comfortable telling anyone else about it. I wasn't comfortable with any what anyone else thought about it. And a lot of that, you know, kind of came out when I did start talking about it. I told some people, and they looked at me and said, you're crazy, man. I guess maybe, thinking, thinking back now, I, I was probably afraid of telling people because I didn't want to hear their reaction. So maybe I was more afraid of the reaction that I'd get, and I really wanted to commit to this. So I just hid it from, from, from everyone around me. You can imagine that there'd be some puzzled responses. It's a lot to spring on those you're closest to, that a few weeks from now, you're going to take off for a whole year. But somehow Greg smoothed it over, and he set it up with sponsors in advance, turned the trip into a fundraiser for the American Diabetes Association. He and Brooks would go on to raise $50,000 for the cause. To his family, and also to Greg, it seemed like Greg was probably working through a quarter-life crisis. He'd come home, He'd settle back into life, to his relationship, to selling software. He'd return tired, fulfilled, and restored, and then be back to normal. The first part of the trip when you're cycling from Alaska south, you start at the Arctic Ocean as the general route this place called Prudhoe Bay. And then there's a 500-mile stretch of gravel that runs along the Alaska oil pipeline through Anwar National Park. Really amazing area. And then you get to Fairbanks, and Fairbanks is really your first resupply point. The timeline that Greg and Brooks set out was ambitious. They would be pedaling six very solid days a week. A year for this trip wasn't record-breaking, but it was fast. There wasn't a lot of time to wander or veer off course. Both of them would need to get back to Seattle. When they got to Fairbanks... They realized that sometimes being open to adventures means setting aside the schedule. A friend of a friend's father lived in Fairbanks. They could stay there, get showered, rest up. We pedal over to his house because someone had sent us an email to go and check him out. And he had this huge contraption in the front driveway. And it was a modified Everglades fan boat. So basically these guys buy these fan boats from Florida. And they bring them up to Alaska. And then they trick him out. So he had dropped some 454 engine in the back, had reinforced the thing with all these huge steel planks, and put this heated insulated cockpit in the middle of it, a gun rack, and a couple of beer holders. That was definitely not on the itinerary, but Brooks and Greg went anyway. And we get up to his, his cabin, and it's this rustic, incredible cabin, and you bald eagles feeding on the salmon right there, you know, at the... At the doorstep of his front door and we're chatting about uh stuff life over the you know in front of the bonfire that night and i just couldn't help but say you know this is incredible it's so quiet it's an amazing peaceful place and he looked at me and said if you think it's quiet now you should come up here in the middle of the winter when it's 60 below you can hear your own heartbeat and i thought i thought about that and i kind of kicked back and i was like wow 60 below I looked at him, I said, Stan, you know, when it's 60 below, what do you do up here? And he looked back and said, Greg, 
when it's 60 below. All you've got to worry about is how to keep your beer warm. And I was like, what? And he goes, actually, that's why I invited you guys up here. I need to, I need to install a propane-fired beer warmer that gets me through the winter, keeps my beer just above freezing. <laughs> it was the most hilarious thing I've ever seen. The next day, I helped him install this, this propane line to his beer refrigerator warmer. And it, in the winter, he sits next to it in his rocking chair, and he pulls a beer out, takes a few swigs before it freezes in his hand, and throws it back in there to keep it just above freezing so he can drink beer all winter long. We were trying to do it in just over a year which is um, you know 18,500 miles so we're doing well over a thousand miles a month and it's no world record speed doing it a year I mean since then people have gone through and they've done it in, you know just a few months or whatever but that's that's fast enough that you're only getting one day of rest every week and when you see something interesting you don't stop you say yes this is great and then you keep going down the road so I would take this time away from working in the software industry, work it out of my system, go see the world, and then come back and be enthused to start over again selling software. This trip was supposed to fit neatly into Greg's master plan. Tell people stories about this trip. They think that, uh, you know, you're biking from one five-star hotel to the next or one bed and breakfast to the next. And the reality is you're biking from one camp spot or one drainage cauldron on the side of the road to the next. When I think about the entire trip, the real highlights for me weren't these incredible views and these endless roads. The real highlights where I had kind of my uh, three epiphanies, I call them, of the trip. Of the three, two of them occurred in the ditch on the side of the road. So a month into the trip, um, I was coming down through through Alaska, just outside of Fairbanks, and you were getting hit by a lot of rain, and I had these fenders on the back of my bike. The fender didn't really extend down far enough to protect uh, Brooks, the guy I was riding with, from getting hit by rain when he was cycling or drafting behind me. So it actually just directed the rain right up into his face. And I saw in the ditch on the side of the road, there was a an empty milk carton. So I crawled down there. And spent time in this ditch and I was cutting the milk carton apart to make this extra fender mud flap extension and then I installed it on my bike to screw it to the back of my other fender and that's when I was started thinking about how real this trip had begun you know I was a month into it we'd already made all the arrangements I quit my job I'd done all the tough stuff that you need to do to actually make something like this come you know make something like this happen and it really was happening down there in that ditch, I realized, oh my gosh, I'm really on this trip. I'm really riding my bike from Alaska to Argentina. So it became, you know, kind of really transferred from this dream, setting out on this dream to this reality. And I looked at this blank, empty milk carton fender that I just created, and I thought, you know, I need to do something on here to make it more real, to like really stamp this to reality now. So I drew this road in this mountain range, and I wrote Alaska to Argentina on the fender. Before that, I felt like I was just kind of biking along and, and I wasn't really on the journey yet. It wasn't really me. It was still just me sitting in my cubicle 
or in a suit pitching to some client thinking about the road ahead. So I transferred from that to actually occurring. So I was on this trip now. It was real. Greg and Brooks dropped out of Alaska into Canada, through the lower 48, into Mexico. They were on pace for their year-long journey. The trip was the sabbatical that Greg had imagined. And we were flying along, we were ahead of schedule, we were conquering the landscape together. We were seeing new things, we were in Mexico, it was more of an adventure. There was crazy stuff happening around us, but we'd navigated all the roads, we'd gone through Mexico City, we'd you know, not been run over by a car. We had met really incredible people, but we had been going fast. And we're going through an area that we'd been warned was dangerous. And there had been problems, but we didn't care. We're two, uh, two gringos conquering Mexico on our bikes and nothing could stop us. They were making their way into southern Mexico, pedaling through small towns and villages in semi-mountainous terrain. I started to get a funny feeling as the day continued that people were watching us. I just didn't feel comfortable. And we were going up um, a remote section of this highway. Actually, it's not a highway, but a back road. Went up a remote section of this back road. And it was a perfect site for an ambush. And at that point, I saw some spotters ahead of me at the left side of the road. And I could hear them chirping. And I saw some people behind me flanking me on both sides coming out on the road. And it looked like they are armed, but I couldn't tell. And they started coming out and, and running at us. At that point, I knew something bad was happening. These guys came running out of the woods with masks and machetes, and they're on us before we could get away. I had a hard time in a terrible land, waiting for the good Lord to open his hand, but the good Lord's mercy's in high demand. And they started beating us with machetes and were threatening us. And I remember this guy had one guy was in front, and he had me. He had a machete to my neck, and he was telling me to give him everything I had. And I could hear them beating Brooks behind me, and we didn't know what to do. But as this guy had machete on my neck, and I thought perhaps I could be killed here, I had this kind of third epiphany of clarity, I guess is the second of that time, and it was that everything's going to be cool. Everything's going to be fine, and you just need to keep going. Don't stop. And they took stuff from our bikes, and their arms were full, and that gave us this brief, I guess, moment of time where we could ride our bikes away from them as they had their arms full. This is the reality of what's going on in a trip like this. This stuff can happen. As painful and terrible it was, it's kind of burst my bubble. You know, but I wasn't... I could no longer be naive about the situations around me and the place I was going. I had to figure out what was, what was, what was really happening. I had to protect myself. It became a reality. So it wasn't just two guys conquering the world on a bike anymore. It was two guys conquering the, conquering the world on a bike, but bad stuff could happen too, you know? After Greg and Brooks got to safety, they paused to take stock of the situation. They were both struggling from the trauma of it. They let their families know 
Brooke's fiance flew down. Greg's parents, brother, and girlfriend came to meet them in Guatemala. Brooks took his bike with him because he knew right from the start that he was done. Greg stashed his bike in the jungle so he could return to the place he'd left off. It was a tough thing because you want to be supportive, but in the same sense, uh, you want to be like, okay, <laughs> this, is a, this is a reality and this is a lot of risk, so just you need to gauge um, what, what's it worth to you and how you want to approach it. This is Todd Bleakney's Greg's brother. Their family gathered around Greg and Brooks. The trip had gotten serious. This wasn't a sabbatical. My brother summed up, basically said, you know, you're old enough to decide what you want to do, obviously, and you're independent financially, so you're, you're doing this on your own. We're not supporting you, but you have to understand it. As a family, we just don't want you getting killed. We want you to be safe, and you need to think about that before moving forward. To make matters more troubling, with the most dangerous part of the ride still awaiting them back in Mexico, Brooks decided to call it quits. Greg would be going on by himself. The risk for him wasn't worth the reward anymore. Here's Todd again. I wasn't sure we were going to try to grab him and dig one, throw him on a plane to say, come back now. Trying to be supportive, but, you know, and also a real conversation of, look, you know, think of what you're getting into and think of, think of the impact it has on yourself and, you know, what could happen. And, you know, it's not just you down here, it's all of us. And, you know, we want you to really think long and hard about, you know, continuing. Greg decided that he was going to keep going, or at least not go home. He let them know. He understood their concerns. But the epiphany during the attack was too clear. This trip, this metamorphosis wasn't complete yet. Then the next day, my parents left, my girlfriend left, Brooks left, his fiance left. And I was sitting there at a cafe in Antigua, Guatemala by myself trying to figure out how I was going to go forward or what I was going to do. Did you feel disappointed in, in Brooks's decision? He had something to go back to. He had something that was really important to him. And at that point, we are in different circumstances. Sometimes when you're on an adventure with someone, you have to understand those circumstances. So we're really close, and I can... I can say, yeah, I think probably was frustrating for both of us. I mean, the dream that we had of, of doing this trip together and finishing together didn't exist anymore. On top of that, Greg was struggling to get back into the riding. The threat, the fear, remained long after the attack. The great thing about bike touring is that it gets you to the spots between the tourist points. It cuts away the roadblocks that stand between you and the locals. And that's amazing, this interaction with people who never see foreigners on the side of the road. Everyone just blows by on a bus or flies over them on an airplane to the main attraction of their country, their main tourist attraction. Now, this had also become a drawback. Almost everyone you meet on the side of the road is standing there with a machete in their hand because they're farmers and they use machetes on a daily basis. And when you've just been attacked by a group of men using machetes, it can be kind of freaky. He wanted to keep going, but he was struggling to work through the anxiety. His pace slowed. He joined other slower-moving bicyclists in the hopes that that would lessen the fear. He gave up the timeline, the schedule. He left Mexico, through Guatemala, crossed into Honduras. But I didn't know how to manage all the stress I had. Everyone I met on the side of the road was totally freaking me out. And these guys are standing there with machetes and guys on, with guns on, in the back of every truck in Honduras. You know, there's just guns and machetes. They were everywhere. At least it seemed like they were everywhere to me at that time. And the way I dealt with that was by making pictures.
inside this camera that I bought right before going into Mexico. And I didn't really know how to use it yet. It was an SLR camera. It was a digital camera. And that became my escape from fear in my way of dealing with everything that had happened to me, making pictures over and over and over again. So I became kind of obsessive about using my camera. And anyone I met down the road would always comment, man, you're just like way into photography, man. And that point, yeah, I was way into photography, but I was also scared out of my mind. <laughs> so I was using the camera not to have to deal with this other stuff. So when I'd see something that freaked me out, I'd somehow pick up my camera and that would be my way to deal with it. My friend gave me this great piece of advice. He said, you know, you got to be like a dog. What do dogs do when they first meet each other? They sniff butts. Go sniff butts. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> he said, everyone you meet, go talk to them. Make sure you're comfortable with them. Because 99% of, of the people you meet on the road are good people. They're curious. They're staring at you because you're this gringo riding by in a bicycle. They're not staring at you because they want to rob you. Go introduce yourself, say hello, make a picture, and deal with it that way. And I took his advice, and it was amazing. I was invited to people's homes. I was invited to weddings. I made friends. I learned Spanish. And it was this kind of fear-based introduction with my camera and conversation that really allowed me to keep going forward. crossed into South America, teamed up with other groups of riders, took the side roads, explored, took pictures and more pictures and then more pictures. One year turned into two. The relationship with a girlfriend dissolved. The only thing that physically connected him to his old life was his home, the belongings, the car, the big screens, and the stereo systems. You know, like when I started the trip, the biggest fear I had was when I come back, Will someone hire me back into the software business? Will my old company take me back? Can I get back into the business I was in before? And I think two years later, when I was coming, getting close to the end of the road, I realized that fear was totally non-existent anymore. Because I, I sat down and thought about it, you know, even if someone did offer me my old life back, could I do it? And that was a huge reality for me and I realized I couldn't go back to my old life it just wouldn't work for me anymore it was like the bird being let out of the cage can you go back in the cage I need to figure out some other way for myself it was like I could go back settle into my house probably call my girlfriend a million times and try to get her to come back to me and go back into my old life but I wanted to make the decision then when I was like pure in a really pure clear state of mind like no you're not going back you're moving forward this is like the new thing the new direction for you and that's when I said, you know, this will kind of put the stamp on that by selling my house. It's the last thing I have that's like a big physical possession that will kind of sever my new life from my old life and starting over. And I sent an email to my realtor and I said, hey, man, I want to sell this. And he said, no problem. Check in with me in a, in a few days. And I'd gone through this really remote section of Patagonia and got to this little tiny outpost town where they had a satellite email system. I checked my email. <laughs> I had all these emails from my realtor going, dude, 
I sold your house like the day after we talked. <laughs> We've been waiting for a response for a week now. <laughs> I was like, whoa. So I ended up calling him on a satellite phone and closing the final deal for my home. So I came moving on. I won't admit defeat. Despite the fact that Greg had decided that his old past would no longer work for him, he didn't know what he was going to do moving forward. He made his way down south to the fabled peaks surrounding El Chaten, Fitzroy, Saratori, beautiful mountains. Only a few hundred miles remained on this journey. And then the second time in the ditch was a month before I finished the trip. And that was like a year, almost two years later. And the fender was still on the back of my bike, the original fender. And I'd come through El Shalten, and in the mountains in El Shalten, you have the Fitzroy Massive, and it was really late in the year, and so we had some bad weather going in there, and I decided to camp and just wait, because I heard that in the morning, if the clouds rise over the mountains, and the sun angle's just right, that there's something called the sunrise of fire, and the peaks of El Shalten, they just totally light up, Fitzroy lights up, and it's supposed to be really incredible. So I waited around, and finally it happened. I was camping, and it happened three days in a row. And it was absolutely incredible. And I realized that my mud flap had blown off the back of my bike. And it really freaked me out because through all this time on the bike, I'd lost most of the things that I'd started with. And one of the few things I had left that really was valuable to me was this mud flap. And it blew off the bike, and I got up out of my sleeping bag and started running down the road chasing it. It was this old gravel road leading El Shalten. And then I realized the mud flap had kind of blown away. It was gone. And I looked up, and I looked down this road, and it was absolutely amazing. And I know it sounds kind of strange. Here's this metaphysical panhandling, but the road that I saw was almost exactly the same as the road that I'd drawn on my mud flap over a year before. And at that point... I really realized that I'd found the right road for me. This was where I was supposed to be. This dream that I had that I drew on the back of this fender at the start of the trip had become a reality and actually had started this whole new life for me. And it was the, the road that I discovered. And for me at that point, it didn't matter if I finished a trip. I was just, you know, a few hundred miles from the, from the end. But that was the conclusion of the trip to me. I went back to the the ditch, crawl back in my sleeping bag and just watch the sunrise of fire happen over Fitzroy again and realize, you know, this is it. This is my new life. This is the new road. I found it. Much has changed in Greg's life since he returned to the States in 2007. He followed his developing passion of photography and slowly turned it into a career. Someone else lives in the massive white home in North Seattle. Now, Greg travels the world photographing and writing about bicycle culture. He is by definition a vagabond. It seems like you're pretty happy with how you reshaped your life. But I know that being on the road, living out of your car or in suitcases, it's not easy. And I'm curious, are, are there sides of that old life that you miss? 
one thing I really, really, really miss, man, the number one thing is not the surround sound and that stuff, but like having a stereo. <laughs> it was one of my favorite things to do, and it still is. It's just like listening to music and just putting in a CD that you love and having a place that you feel comfortable in and just listening to music and shutting your eyes and just like doing your own little meditation, you know? Like, I love that. I don't do some of the things I used to do. I feel like I'm a different person in that regard. But there's still something to be said for having a home and having a life that you've created for yourself. When I, I'm laying down somewhere and, I, you know, I don't know where I'm going to be at the end of the day, you know, I'm on an assignment somewhere. I don't know where I'm going to sleep at the end of the day. And I, I do miss the comfort of that life, you know. But I know that if I keep moving forward, I can I can get that back again, that comfort. Maybe not on an Italian leather couch, but I can get it in a new way, a way that's been created through something that I really feel passionate about, something I really love doing. If I follow that path, I will be able to sleep at night. You can find photos and stories from Greg at gregbleakney.blogspot.com. Greg's just gotten back from India and now is headed for Europe to cover bicycling life and events. He's a man on the move. Music today by Melodium, Maktub, Danny Saul, Ezra Furman, and the Harpoons, Plains, and Toru Imwa. That was a lot of people. And to check them all out, just go to our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. We've got all the tracks there and information about artists. You can download the cuts. Support for the show comes from Patagonia. Be sure to check out Patagonia Music, where you can buy tracks to benefit the environment and stream cuts from up-and-coming artists. Visit them at patagonia.com slash music. Support for the show also comes from Kuat Racks. From the NB to the Sherpa, Kuat is making bike racks functional and good-looking. Check them out online at kuatracks.com. Additional support comes from New Belgium Brewing. Visit them online at newbelgium.com. I'm Fitz Cahal, and you've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Thank you.